you for joining me. Uh, it's my pleasure, Connor. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. Where are you from, Tim? Where did you grow up? Right, I was born um, on the Wirral in Merseyside, a little village called Irby in 1960. Um, born to uh, in a sort of a semi-professional family, if you like. My father was a bank manager and uh, my mother was a physiotherapist. So what you'd suppose in those days, you could be sort of very respectable middle-class family. Um, but unfortunately, it was a particularly uh, unhappy childhood. Um, basically, my mother and father were constantly arguing. There's a lot of shouting and screaming in the house. Mm. Uh, I remember that from being very, very young. Um, and when me and my brother were sort of, I was seven, he was five, my father disappeared and we never saw him again. Um, there was no explanation as such. He just went and my mother disintegrated and started drinking heavily and, and, and using pills to cope. So that sort of left me a very uh, worried and timid and nervous child who was uh, painfully shy, uncomfortable around people. Mm. Um, and that was, that's just, that was my sort of early years, if you like. Yeah. How would you describe then moving into the teenage years, the absence of your father probably left an enormous hole, that male uh, presence in your life. What happened when you moved into your teenage years? How did you, how did you cope? Yeah, it was um, in my teenage years, I obviously went to, I went to uh, grammar school and um, because of having no sort of male role model, although there were, my granddad and my sort of my nana and granddad sort of had to step in mm. and he was sort of a male role model, but he wasn't around all the time because uh, he was a very busy man. They, they were running a business. Mm. Um, but in school, uh, I was people found out very quickly. Children are very cruel, aren't they? You know, so mm. and we didn't have much money then because in those days there was um, maintenance payments uh, around divorces and stuff like that. There wasn't the same, you know, um, legal stuff around it. And my mum had to survive on a pittance and just help from my grandparents. So we dressed differently, me and my brother. We were in sort of different types, second-hand clothes, if you like. Mm. Um, uh, we looked different and they soon found out I had no father. So I was remorselessly bullied for, um, for several years, probably. I'm made to feel sort of different, which made me isolate um there was no there was no male figure if you like that i could go and talk to about that mm. about the way i was feeling um and i sort of repressed those emotions inside if you like you know until uh but i found that if i could make people laugh mm. that was how i could become accepted so i was the i, <laughs> I was the character at school who um who would always do the crazy things you know the nutter things to make people laugh and to become accepted into the group if you like um mm. and usually the bad group as well like you know the ones that were the tearaways mm. <laughs> and that was a, that was the story of my teenage years really just getting into scrapes and getting into trouble so, but also self you would have been you probably would have become quite self-conscious and there would have been an effect on your self-esteem from the bullying right yeah absolutely i used to feel um well i felt different anyway I always, mm. always had this feeling of, and I, I felt that for many years, you know, I felt different than everyone else. And if anyone looked at me, I would blush. I would feel, you know, um, my self-esteem was in, 
was a really low air ball at the time. I had no self-worth really either mm. at that time. I just knew that if I could, you know, by making, doing crazy things and making people laugh, you know, in those early years that I, that I would gain some sort of acceptance. But no, I had no self-esteem. Despite the, that early childhood trauma, which is essentially what it is, and difficulties, you became very successful. Talk to me about yeah. that. Yep, through, well, through a set of um, circumstances, really. I, I managed to get out of school. I was taught, I managed to pass uh, my O-levels. Everyone was telling me constantly that I wasn't going to do pass anything. Mm -hmm. I would never amount to anything. That, that was always bomb. But teachers told me that. In fact, you know, a lot of family told me that because I was always in trouble. Uh, but I managed to get O-levels and I managed to get to college and do a hotel and catering management, um, OND it was in those days, mm. and fell into sort of trainee hotel management, got moved to Cambridge um, in a, uh, with Trust House 40, as it was in those days. Mm. I was, you know, I trained in every department and um, I, I, I did well in it. You know, I got up to duty manager level. But then through another bizarre set of circumstances, I found myself falling into the nightclub uh, business. There was a club in a very successful nightclub in Cambridge called Rennell's. Mm. And they were advertising uh, for a doors manager and assistant manager. And, and um, just through a whim, really, I applied for it and got an interview, got in and just found I, I was in what my heaven if you like i found i instantly clicked i could uh, i could do this i knew it was a sort of instinct i sort of knew what people wanted and um very quickly i rose, sort of rose up in that and got promoted and transferred to leicester to run a club called isabella's mm. which was a very successful nightclub in the center of leicester and that went on for about eight nine years running clubs um until i i managed to get to the biggest a most successful club in the Midlands at the time um, and managed that and running a, a massive, you know, it was a three and a half thousand capacity venue, um, low, live acts, you know, Radio 1 DJs, chart acts playing mm. there um, and it, eight bars, three floors it was on. Uh, that was a club called Mr. Keysers, which is no longer exists actually, but you know, I was, I got all this in my early 20s, um, mm. too young to cope with it, really. But, uh, but yes, became, um, you know, I was earning money that I could only have dreamt of, really, in those days. And um, did that until I met my wife, actually. Um, and then we went on to work together, um, running big pubs, restaurants and hotels for many years after that as a, as, as a management couple all over, well, all over the place, Midlands and South of England. So, so you, yeah. So you built this, you, you built this career plus you build a family unit. Yeah. Right? Two beautiful young daughters. Right. So um, everything is perfect. Right. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, there was always issues around, um, if I look back on it now, I can look back at the, there was a lot of recreational Mm. drug use for instance in my nightclub days i was using amphetamines and cocaine recreationally if you like but it's mm. quite you know it, i i was given it so i never had to pay for it so i was just using it willy-nilly really although it, it didn't ever seem a problem to me and always my drinking from my teenage years i've been someone who was always the last person to leave if you like would always want another drink even mm. though i was like staggering 
you know, I would, I would, you know, I could, you could never ask me to go, just go out for a pint. That would be unthinkable. You know, that would be no good to me. I was party or nothing, you know? So there was sort of binging went on and there was, I would, I would call it, I suppose, if I look back, I didn't see it as a problem, but it probably, mm. it was problem drinking um, in, in those early years. So in the nightclub role, you would have had quite a high status position, right? So yeah. here's where the free the free uh, drugs are coming from, and you're you're, yeah. you're a big guy in yeah. uh, in the room. Well, in Plus, that town, in in the, in the Midlands, Birmingham, mm. and, and Leicester, people knew who I was. Yeah, and um, I mean, there were times I had to walk around with security behind me because there were people who were looking for me. You know, that that couldn't get into the club and stuff like that. You know, it was like a it was a fairly high-profile position. We were always in the newspapers as well for various stuff. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it's um, it, it was yeah people people watching all the time. So yeah. So tell me then the the drinking started in the teenage years. Can you remember your first drink? Can you remember that feeling? Can you remember what that was like? Yeah. What age? <laughs> I can now looking back on it. Now I know what I'm I'm, I'm looking for. I suppose from. Even from a very, very young age, you know, from my, certainly my teenage years, as soon as I, I could get into a pub, if you like, mm. I wanted to change the way I felt. I wanted to, I didn't want to feel like I felt inside all the time. And that was always worried, nervous, anxious, um, less than, you know, shy, you mm. name it. Uncom uncomfortable in my own skin is the only way I can describe it. Mm. And I remember taking a drink, a drink that first time I took a drink and all of that disappearing. And I realized then that was a very quick and easy way mm. to change the way I felt. And, so it was like yeah. an anesthetic for social anxiety. Probably. Oh, yeah. And I suppose that if I look back, although I was sort of partying in those years, you know, and, and it was part of the culture, mm. I was still using it for that just to be just to be included, if you like, you know, mm. just to, um, although it hadn't developed into a, a dependency then, you know, it was, it, it was, um, there was some problems. Sometimes there were blackouts, you know, there were times I can't remember. There were times I did really stupid things. You know, I remember being arrested when I was 17 at a Thin Lizzy concert for being drunk and incapable. I mean, that wasn't particularly, <laughs> you know, my, and the guy I went with, you know, left there, left there fairly sober. Mm. So it was, it was me, you know, I always went that extra. But like I say, I just saw that as um, gaining kudos, not really an issue at the time. Yeah, kind of a macho type of thing. And, and well, culturally, yeah. um, in, in these islands, Northern Europe in particular, we, uh, there's a kind of machismo associated in the past, at least, in the 80s and 90s with yeah. drinking, right? Definitely. So well, you're successful, you're running the nightclubs, are you at this point? Are you drinking every day? Um, not really. No, I could. I could. Like I say, the the physical dependency. Even then, into my. If I go into my thirties, just jump forward a little bit. Mm. I, 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 um, like I say, we were running then with my wife. We were running restaurant, um, restaurants, pubs, and hotels. It was beef eater we started with, and then we moved around like big breweries. We were running big, big businesses. You know, mm. 60, 70, 80 staff. Um, and hotels attached to them and whatever and we mm. had two children two beautiful girls and um and there were periods then of of sobriety where for my i would just take time off 
from 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 drink, if you like, you know, mm. in those in, in my thirties, and and there were times. I mean, I, I remember taking it. It was a couple of years off from it, and running marathons. I start. I got you know. But if I look back at that behaviour, mm. that that's very addictive. I became addicted to that behaviour. I ran six marathons in the end. I'm a big chap, you know. I'm not really built for marathon running. Mm. Ended up running like three New York, uh, one New York marathon, three London marathons. You know, like just craziness, really. And I've got a metal hip now, actually, which is <laughs> because of that. Mm. So, uh, you know, that all or nothing nature, if you like. Um, but I wasn't drinking every day then. That was, like I say, there was there were, there were sort of big gaps mm. in my, mm. you know, particularly into my 30s. Because from the outside, people looking in at my life then, you know, my beautiful wife, uh, two beautiful children, mm. materially... You know, someone looking in at my life would say, well, he's got everything going on. He's in a great job. You know, I had all the, the flash jewelry, jewelry, the car, all the, you know, all the stuff that people place importance on. Mm. And, um, and but, but inside, I was dying inside. Even during, I can remember, even during those times, you know, feeling discontent, irritable, something's missing, always wanting more, never satisfied. You know, it was like uh, a gnawing inside of me all the time. And I still, with all that, all that, what I had, I still felt less than everybody else. I'm different. <laughs> you know, it's craziness, really, isn't it? But yeah, it is um, it but I, I do think it is quite common what yeah. you're talking about. I have, I have a suspicion that it is a lot more common. You, you, you gain all the trappings. You do everything right. You're a success story. You're even running marathons. You have the wife, you have the kids, you have cash in the bank of the cars that has everything and yeah. the emptiness is still there and we've heard this story over and over and over again um so at what point so you're in your 30s you have two kids at what point did you did it start to become a problem like a real problem right well very strangely um it wasn't until my early 40s that th I mean, there were there were the odd occasion in my thirties when I would uh, my wife wouldn't be talking to me because of drunken behaviours, mm. but it wasn't you know the, these were occasions that were, would happen, but there was never it was it was never sort of daily stuff that was going on or it was never considered or I never considered it a problem. Mm. Um, uh, but in my early forties is when things started to go downhill, if you like. And probably, ironically, that was when we were probably at our most successful. So um, I don't know whether that was an age thing or I don't know. People talk about midlife crises, don't they? But mm. I can tell you, I can tell you when uh, the exact moment that things started to go downhill, and that was when I hurt my back, um, and I was lifting in a, in the cellar. I was lifting barrels in the cellar. I hurt my back. Went to the doctors. Mm. And she prescribed me coding um, for my back. And, and in those days, we're talking about uh, sort of late late 90s, I suppose, uh, early 2000s. You know, it was quite easy. I mean, there's much more care goes on around a lot of the prescribing these days. But yeah, it was fairly, and I knew her anyway. She was a regular in the pub. So, mm. you know, I, I, I got coding, never taken it really before. Coding is and, an opiate extract. It's, it's a... It's a um... Is it, does it come from the opiate? Yeah, it comes Various. from the poppy codeine. Yeah, it's yeah. just a lesser form of morphine, really. Okay. Um, and um, it's basically the first stop that of the, doc the doctor will give you. I mean, normally in England, they were 
they would prescribe um, codeine mixed with paracetamol, like a mixture of it. But she just gave me 30 milligram tablets of codeine because mm. my back pain was genuine at that time. It was, it was, you know, it was painful. Mm. And I remember it distinctly, and I can remember it to this day taking that codeine and every single problem that I had, all those feelings I've just talked about melted away and I felt like I was wrapped in this warm cotton wool, if you like. Nothing could hurt me. Confidence, um, relaxed, no anxiety. And that was the beginning of a, an extremely slippery slope because any opiate addict will tell you that no matter what the opiate is, what, you'll never recreate that that first feeling first. anyway. Mm. You can only supplement it. And um, and that's when it's slippery slope started because it sort of escalated from there, really. My issues and the drinking went from that point um, where I was, you know, it very quickly escalated to her prescribing me MST tablets. Through my, I was lying to her, telling her how bad my back was. Mm. And she was prescribing me MST, which was morphine sulfate tablets. Mm. Um, again, this would be much more difficult to do these days. And um, it went on and on. I was I was using up prescriptions, um, asking for repeat prescriptions, and becoming dependent on morphine, basically on opiates. So this and, is in your early forties, Tim, right? So this yes, is yeah, in my early forties, this was, and this sort of, and I managed to keep that secret from from my family because, unless you're sort of. Um, you're dropping off to sleep and nodding off and, mm. and, and slurring. People tend not to notice when things like that, unless they know what they're looking for. So I managed to hide that. Mm. But when the doctors stopped prescribing me because they got wise to it, mm. I then had to find, because I didn't want the withdrawal. I knew there would be a horrendous withdrawal. So I started How did the doctors to, get wise to it? Just because of the sheer quantities I was asking for. And for. Uh, they, they were refusing to fill the repeat prescriptions. Um, they got what she she called me in one day and had a chat with me about it. The doctor privately mm. said, um, we need to wean you off these. So they just prescribed me like a weaning off dose, if you like. How long had you been on them at that stage? Uh, probably eight, nine months, I would probably say, to get to that level. Um, but it only takes really, if you're taking opiates like that, then it only takes really 14 days, eight to 14 days before you've got a dependency. And then things really got out of hand then because I couldn't get them and I was I didn't want to go to withdrawal. So I started drinking to counteract, um, you know, when I couldn't get hold of um, codeine. Then I started going to chemists and buying um, Neurofen Plus tablets. Mm. I don't know if you have those in Ireland, but... Um, but, do, but in, yeah. In, yeah, yeah. The, in, um, anyway, mixture of codeine and ibuprofen. Yeah. To get to the level I needed to get, I was taking industrial quantities of them. And obviously that was costing a lot of money because they were eight, nine pounds for 32. What do you mean I exactly just, by industrial quantities? How many are we talking? I was two packets a day of those. 24 per packet. 32 12. per packet. So I was taking, this is when it's at its worst. Yeah. I, my, my tolerance levels, if someone tried to take that, that wasn't at the tolerance levels. And this is the same with alcohol as well, yeah. obviously. Um, then it would kill them. Mm. That's how bad it was. 
Um, I would take that over a day and that would just keep me, it wouldn't even get me high, that would just keep me on an even keel and stop me going into withdrawal for that day. So um, your, your alcohol is accelerating, your alcohol use yeah. is accelerating along a parallel line to yeah. acceleration in the codeine. Especially use. when I couldn't get hold of the, um, the, uh, the, the, codeine. the codeine because I got banned from chemists in the area because they got wise to it as well. Now, bear in mind that I'm in a suit. Um, people know me in the area for managing restaurants and hotels in the area. Yeah. And I'm going, trying to shop for these, to, and they're knocking me back at the various chemists. At the pharmacies, yeah. And I was banned from, um, and I'm not proud about this at all, but this is the reality of addiction. Mm. I, I used to spend, uh, because obsession comes on you then, when, you, when you're addicted like that, you're obsessed, all you really care about. You wake up in the morning and your first thought is, where am I going to get my, my, my hit? Where am I going to get the money for it? Who am I going to borrow it off? Where am I going to steal it from? How am I going to get out to buy it? Because I had to make an excuse to go and drive around chemists to buy this stuff. Mm. Um, and then I've, I discovered um, a way of getting hold. This is when it was really at its worst. And this would be, I suppose I'd be about 43 by this time. Mm. Um, and, and I discovered someone who could get hold of um, heroin, um, which was smoked. So, you know, I, it was, I would smoke it. And that was a much cheaper way for me to do it. So I would supplement. If I couldn't get that, I'd get for the Neurofen Plus. It was horrendous. It was a mm. horror show. And my family was starting to notice at this time um, that obviously something was badly wrong because I just wasn't present. I was... Um, you know, and money was going missing, and uh, it, it was just awful. So, uh, were you getting this, heroin from street dealers? I found I knew someone in the pub who knew someone. Mm. So I, I, I was I used to just have to go and get it from this bloke. It was it was like I, I wasn't going. Mm. Although it would have, if I couldn't have got hold of it at a certain stage, it, it wouldn't have been long before I was uh, trawling streets to try and get hold of it. Um, you know, that was. Uh, that was the way it was. That was the reality of it. Um, but nothing else mattered. Um, you know, I put, I put that, that, I put the alcohol and the drugs before everything in my life. I lost at that time, um, and it wasn't the last time it happened. But th this, at this particular time, I lost um, every shred of dignity and integrity and honesty mm. that I it stripped much quicker than alcohol has ever done opiates strip everything away um at a much faster rate i sold all my jewelry that was all very sentimental mm. that my family uh had bought me over years and my wife had bought me for my 40th this beautiful gold chain with a diamond on it sold it mm. you know it had reached uh, so there was an intervention basically at that stage <laughs> so your family would have in your you your wife and family would have noticed this behavior. Yeah. Um, and then they made an intervention, right? So yeah, what happened basically. there? Uh, well, it was discussed a family meeting, if you like. Um, and I was, that involved my mother at that time, who was managing to hold her life together. Um, and, and my grandmother, mm. um, about me going into rehab, a residential rehab. Um, and I, there was a rehab in Luton called Perry Clayman Clinic. Um, and I was booked in there for a three-month period of time, residentially, mm. where everything was taken from me, if you like. Uh, there was no communication. It was a really strict 
12-step rehab. Um, it's it's not like you're committed, though. You could have left at any point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Could have been could have been thrown out as well at any point because there was yeah. drug testing, drug test and alcohol testing every day. There, it was very strict. Yeah. Um, but I think that people make a, a a lot of talk about rock bottom, and everyone's rock bottom is different. And this wasn't he wasn't my rock bottom yet. Although right. at that point, at that point in time, I believed it was, if you know what I mean, because everything I'd lost everything. Um, I couldn't talk to my family. I was in this place. I was mixing with, and I, I won't be blunt about it at this time because I was my ego was massive at this time. You know, I, I hadn't lost that at all. Unfortunately, didn't have any humility, and I was mixing with street dealers and prostitutes and. Because this rehab took people from prison to, to stop them having prison sentences. That's why it was, it was you know, it was fairly cheap, if you like, as far as rehabs go. I think it was £5,000 for three months. Um, and it did be, I've got to be honest with you, um, after that initial, I got taken to one side by the, the boss of the rehab because I, I, I was not mixing at all well with them and said, you better lose your fucking ego, son. Mm. Otherwise, you're not going to last five minutes in here. So that was. You felt kind of better than the, the people that were in there with you. I did. Uh, unfortunately, that that's exactly how I felt. Mm. And nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> and uh, but that's what addicts are like, you know, until the ego strips away, mm. you can't really move forward. Um, and, um, you know, it was in the end there. And it was my first int introduction to 12 step, a 12 step program as well at that time. Um, so I came out of there three months later. Evangelical is the word I was used. <laughs> you found God. Uh, well, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not a religious man. I'm a spiritual man, mm. but not a religious man. Because that was always one thing that worried me about uh, sort of AA and NA and all that. Um, the God side of it, and the, uh, the you know all that sort of stuff. The cult people mm -hmm. talk about. But again, that's a long way from the truth. And I just, I'm, I just, I've always been a spiritual person, but not religious. When I say evangelical, evangelical about my recovery, mm, you know, okay. I, I shoved it down everyone's throat. And, and tell me then, you would have had a, a, either a sponsor or somebody you could, when you came out of AA, which is an abstinence-based program, 100% abstinence, yeah. and then yeah. you have somebody you can talk to when you're feeling vulnerable, right? When you're out of the AA. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, yeah, the sponsors, first stop would be a sponsor. And then, um, but also many, many other people who were within the rooms that you could talk to that you, you sort of network with. Yeah. But I didn't really embrace it, uh, Connor, at all. I, I, um, I paid it lip service. Right. When you say so you that... paid, it, paid it lip service, so you didn't embrace the philosophy of abstinence-based recovery of the AA when you were on the outside, when you were out of the program? No, not, not well, I sort of, I didn't, I didn't do what it takes. You, you need to do whatever it takes in that program, as I've mm. discovered recently. Mm. Um, but at that point in time, I wasn't prepared to do whatever it takes. So I didn't put the work in that was necessary that I needed to put in on a daily basis. So when I came out, I might have been evangelical for the first few weeks. Yeah. But things... I hadn't dealt with any of the issues that put me in there in the first place. So, and I stopped putting the work in that um, was required and just went backwards and, and, and back to square one again. But what, where were you financially then in terms of work when you came out? Did you go back? 
No, that was uh, there was my wife was my and my wife is still doing it very very successfully now. Right. Um, I might add, it's wonderful. And one thing I will say about uh, at, at this point about about my family, but I think which is really important for any addict, um, they have never never abandoned me. They've always they've always um, supported me, and I couldn't have done anything without them that I've done. Mm. However. However, there have been times when they've had to let me go. And that is the important thing, I think, for any families of addicts. Um, mm. Because until, and you'll know this anyway, but until the addict is ready, not, no amount of convincing. I mean, I've had my children crying, begging me to stop before I kill myself. Uh, and all that's been on my mind is wh where I can go and get a drink quickly after they finish speaking to me. You know, it's like, it, 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 you, they have to let you go at a certain point because it's the best thing they can do mm. and they did do that and they did do that and uh but they never abandoned me they were always i knew they were always there and they're, they're massively back in my life now thank god but um at did that they, point did they forgive you have they forgiven me you'd have to ask them that question yeah i i can't i can't answer that all i can tell you is that at this point in time i try to be the best i can be for them uh, but most of all for myself, obviously, mm. but um, they get the benefit of that, if you like, um, mm. particularly my grandchildren now uh, who've never seen me intoxicated and never will, I hope. Mm. Um, but, you know, they let me go at that point when I, you know, when I, when it all when I came out, my wife carried on running uh, businesses mm. and employed me uh, as a breakfast chef. And then I went searching for other stuff, trying to fill that massive void that I felt inside of me still. Mm. So I went and did an acupuncture course for three years, a, 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 a B, honours degree, a BA degree in mm -hmm. acupun uh, traditional acupuncture. Um, and I did you were, that you were married at this stage, you're still married and still together? Yeah, this yeah. yeah. still married, yeah. And, um, you know, reach, yeah, I mean, it was sort of pootled on, but I was still... I was still buying um, stuff, coding occasionally, and I was still... Whilst doing the acupuncture course? Yeah, whilst doing the acupuncture course. But I wasn't drinking then, interestingly, right. because I knew my family would smell it on me. Yeah. Um, so I avoided alcohol, but the addiction was... My my issues around my addictions were, were all perhaps worse than ever at that stage, mm. because I'd reached a point where I was curling up with shame inside because I was no longer the manager of a business anymore. I was, um, I was doing this acupuncture course and I was breakfast chefing and I, I was just, to be fair, I was glad to be earning any money at all. And I'm glad that they'd had me back and accepting me back. Yeah. Uh, but and this sort of pootled along for me with me being deeply unhappy, um, not through their fault, through my own issues. I'm not resolved issues. Mm. Uh, and that went on until, um, Probably, uh, let's see, into my 50s, I would say, <laughs> where all this went on. I was doing different jobs um, because I, I couldn't do the breakfast chefing anymore. And I, I did different jobs. Mm. And then um, I worked for a cash company delivering cash, you know, one of these security. I got fired for the, from them. Um, so, uh, you know, it was like I just couldn't hold down a job. I was just a mess. Oh, you so were I, using coding at the time, right? Yeah, I was. Yeah, a lot of a lot of that again. That had escalated again because as well, I you say, had the alcohol under control. Yeah, the well, the alcohol. 
I, I just because I was changing the way I felt with the I suppose with the Cody and I was doing, mm. I, I was doing I was doing something to feed that void inside of me to feed that hole inside of me. Um, you know, I was broken inside. I was like, I, the only way I can describe it, I was crying inside all the time. Um, I mean, I went to the doctor. I mean, I was prescribed for, she said I was depressed. And um, at one stage, they they said I was bipolar and uh, they prescribed me ve- uh, effects or venaflaxine, a quite a really high dose of it. Mm. And I was taking that with the codeine and I suppose, and I was, I just wasn't on this planet really for a long, for a long period of time. Um, and then I went back to work for my family again. Um, got so, they, they discovered the codeine again. And we had a, a massive family bust up again. <laughs> and then they gave me one more chance. They said, right, this is, this is absolutely the last chance for you. Quite rightly. What age was this at, Tim? Was this late 40s or early 50s? No, this is early 50s, this was. Early 50s, yeah. I can tell you exactly when it was. It was 2012. Mm. And uh, and it was August 2012. Mm. So I decided, right, I'm, I'm, I'll do it myself. I can do this. I'm strong enough to do this. I'll just stop. And I did. And I got we got to Christmas and everything was on an even keel again. Mm. And... Uh, but I knew it was my last chance anyway. I think that might have shook me up a bit. But still, none of these issues were resolved. And then I was doing this breakfast shipping. I was opening up at 6 a.m. in the morning. And I remember every single day walking past the wine fridge. There was no other, no, no one in the building at all. And I was walking past the wine fridge every day. Mm. And I used to look at it. And this is this is how sneaky addiction is. This is how it never goes away until you till you sorted it properly. It's always going to be there. And um, the little voice started inside my head, what if, what if, what if? And then this one day, unconsciously, not without even realising it, I took two bottles of wine out the fridge and took them into the kitchen with me and drank them before the breakfast. I mean, I can't even explain why I did that. And um, my daughter, unfortunately, my youngest daughter was on breakfast that day, and I'll never forgive myself for it. You know, as soon as she saw me, um, you know, she knew, obviously, because I was a fucking mess. And um, so then uh, they got me out of the kitchen, took me, and and, that, and and I just, I couldn't cope with it. I had a total mental breakdown and um, managed to grab 20 quid out of a till and then disappeared for 24 hours, apparently, although I don't really remember anything about it. Um, I I turned up about three o'clock in the morning, and they were all they they tried to phone me numerous times, and had the police looking for me and all sorts of stuff. All I know is I, I turned up at home. I was cut and bloodied and uh, a mess, and that was the end of it. They said that's it, can't cope with it anymore. You've got to move out. Um, so then I had two years in the wilderness, really, um, where. Fortunately, we owned a little house, which um, we used to rent out, which was empty. And my wife very kindly put some stuff in there for me and moved me in there on my own in a little village called Polesworth, which was in the, a long way away from where they were um, on my own. And that was the end. That was it. Um, you know, for two years, 
Uh, that's, that's, ex that's quite extreme isolation now, right? Yeah. So that's really a time you either confront yeah. or yeah. it can go yeah. even worse. Still, was, still wasn't enough, Connor. It's, it went worse, unfortunately. Uh, my wife, I mean, they never, again, like I said, they never abandoned me. God bless them. Mm. You know, I still saw them. And my wife used to come and visit every week. We'd, we'd, she'd come and pick me up and we'd go out for coffee every week. And it was, it, that was fine. But then I'd be broken when I got dropped back off again. So I, I was, at this point, I was signing on the dole um, on employment, uh, universal credit. So this so is a money... catastrophic. When we're talking, you're a man that had money. Wealth, yeah. resources, finance, yeah. house, cars. Now we're on what was it, fifty pounds, sixty pounds a week? So I think it was seventy. I think seventy-two. It came to something like that a week, which was um, I was one hundred. I say one hundred and forty-four a fortnight. Right. Okay. So I mean, I didn't have to pay for any. Um, the house was paid for, obviously, mm. and um, I used to get some money for the. I had one of those electricity meters that you put the key in. You know, like, but most of that money just went on booze to be fair and um, that's when the drinking with them was the prevalent factor not the opiates um i couldn't afford the opiates so um it was drink so you're sitting and, at home in front of the television basically yeah not well I, I i do the i do the um i do the obligatory for the the uh job center you know do some yeah. job seeking and whatever and to, just to make sure i wouldn't get sanctioned mm. And then I do a lot of walking, Connor. I do a lot of um, physical exercise has always been a, a help to me in, 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 in massively today, obviously. But even then I was doing a lot of walking and thinking. Um, but I was also doing a lot of buying of um, very cheap cider. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's where, and I wasn't eating properly. You know, I was eating shit, basically just junk, you know, whatever mm. I could afford. My nutrition was awful. And this sort of went on for this. This was like two years of uh, hell, I would describe it. Um, and then an opportunity arose. Um, unfortunately, my mum uh, had died, um, and my nana had died, and um, we had we had some money left to us, and um, there was some money came up via a pension that matured for me when I was fifty-five, a private pension, and we'd always visited a place in Spain where I'm living now mm. um, and an opportunity came up to buy an apartment here. So my wife sat me down this one day and obviously saw the state I was in and said, well, my sister-in-law lives over here. Why don't, why don't we just buy this apartment for the family, put it in the girl's name mm. and um, you go and live there and sort yourself out in the city. It might be a, a whole new environment. What That's a what terrific I mean, idea. I, yeah. So, um, you know, and I, I must admit that every, all the ducks came into a row for that. You know, I mean, the money, the money just appeared um, at the right time. And the, mm. this property, the property was actually being bought by someone else and it fell through. And it's a perfect, it's an apartment. Um, it's in Bella Madna Pueblo, where I live now, which is a village just set back from the sea. Very quiet. The change um, of environment, the, the yeah. weather, everything is changing from the isolation of the cabin. Now you're moving into... Finance, you, you get a financial windfall, let's face it, right? Yeah. So that's the life raft. Yeah. yeah. Out of a situation, the family gets together. And yeah. that's the support network, the social network that acts. Yeah. There a lot yeah. of people, unfortunately, don't ever get that life raft. No, no, that was, that was, that was not my, my, uh, that was their doing totally, you know, without, 
without their action, if you like, um, and support, that would never have happened, obviously. So that was a blessing. And but came over here and obviously <laughs> sucked in. You know what I'm going to say now? For the first year I was here, um, I just destroyed myself, basically. So it hadn't, I mean, I know this is this, this sort of revolving door story, this, but this is a, the reality of addiction, really, when you yeah. don't actually, when, when you don't deal with what's, with, with what's taking you there in the, or you don't recognise what's taking you there in the first place. Um, so I was, I'd found Tramadol then as well, which was a drug that's sold in the, it's an opiate drug sold in, what it's now banned in, 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 they're not allowed to sell it in pharmacies, but in, when I first came over here, they could, you could buy it over the counter in a pharmacy, mm. very strong opiate. So I was, I was not, I was knocking those down with booze. I was in a shit state. Were you working? And without going into all the gory details, one yeah. day I was sat on the bed at home and um, I remember crying. I was in my room, isolate. Addicts tend to isolate, as you're probably aware. And, mm. I, and I was doing all this on my own. You know, I had no network at all. I was too ashamed to let my family, although they probably knew I was speaking to them on the phone, but I tried to avoid taking any or drinking anything when I spoke to them anyway. And then this one day it got to, to the point where it was so bad and I was having to drink every two hours to stave off withdrawal symptoms, um, you know, and drop pills down me that I just remember crying this guttural, you know, the sort of cry that you usually reserve for funerals when you've really lost someone who's dear to you. Mm. That's, how I, that's how I remember breaking down inside. Like it just, I, I would just crying like guttural tears if you like um and i remember saying for fuck's sake somebody help me and i just decided at that point although this is the end of the story um i decided at that point to take action uh, i thought that was my rock bottom um and i researched withdrawal very carefully online found out what uh and I've made videos on this on my channel, you know, like um, what it actually does to your body, what to expect from it, how to get through it in the best possible way. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't recommend this to anyone with alcohol withdrawal. Always go and see a doctor and get the, the correct drugs because you can die from it and you can have seizures. But I wasn't prepared to go to see anybody. I wanted to do this on my own, um, which was ego driven again. And um, But I, I, I got everything I needed to get. To, to do it and I just gritted my teeth and I did it <laughs> most so just total abstinence uh, from, a from, a, from a point yeah I, I stopped I'd stopped the pills about two weeks before mm. I stopped those first so I went through an opiate withdrawal for the first couple of weeks which was horrific and the problem with withdrawal when you're using heavily like that is something called pause which you've probably heard of which is post-acute withdrawal syndrome mm. Um, and that these symptoms can carry on for years in some cases while the body, while the brain chemicals rebalance, the dopamine levels rebalance, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, so I did, did the opiate first and then I did the alcohol. And I definitely please don't do that on your own if you're listening to this. See a doctor. Um, it was awful, a horrendous experience, obviously. Um, got through that and then decided just out of a whim to start making, I, I was looking online at videos, uh, recovery videos, um, saw Ryan Donnelly who was prevalent at that time, 
um, alcohol mastery, another channel which I got involved with and decided to start making them myself, um, which I'm doing to this day. Chronicling, chronicling the journey from yeah. right the from, withdrawal point, yeah, post withdrawal, yeah, in Spain, yeah, and, and right up, like saying it how it was basically, just speaking, no gimmicks on the channel mm. at all, just um, me speaking my truth honestly from the heart, and just sharing what worked for me and what didn't work for me, constantly going out and researching. Then I changed for, for sort of three, three years of, of total abstinence of all, of all substances whilst doing this and making these videos and uh, researching and, 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 but still not realizing it still um, to a certain extent, white knuckling it. Cause there was a few things, a few really important keys that, I, that, that I'd forgotten. Although I was putting work into it, the whole jigsaw wasn't complete. I was managing my um, emotions with exercise, with diet, which I still do to this day, which are incredibly important, obviously. Um, with I was using uh, meditation, breathing techniques, cold showers, again, which I do to this day, mm. all important. Um, but I hadn't dealt with the you know, unbeknown to me, I thought I was coasting along, but um, it only takes a major issue in your life to come up if you've not dealt with the stuff um, properly and you've got no support network in place to knock you and tilt you back over the edge again. And for me, um, that was COVID. And um, it was horrendous here in Spain. And I'd started to walk the um, Camino de Santiago for charity, for, for a homeless charity, St. Mungo's. And it was, a, it was a massive journey. And I got, I got turned back because it, COVID started. I'd done about um, 200 miles and got turned black in a place called Merida. It was very frightening at that time because no one knew what was going on, obviously. I got back here. I was crushed because of all the expectations I had around it. And immediately relapsed. <laughs> so, after being after a three-year abstinence, complete yeah. abstinence, a complete change of life, you're exercising, yeah. you're going in the sea, you're you must yeah. be feeling pretty kind of amazing, even though you haven't dealt with the, the trauma, childhood trauma, childhood issues. Yeah, you must be feeling quite good. Santiago hits. You're you're in Santiago. COVID, bang. Yeah, and then there's a yeah. relapse. Yeah. Just out of nowhere, and I'll tell you how it happened, how obsession builds up. I remember walking past, there was a bin area next to where I live. This, this is how insidious addiction is. Mm. Um, and I'd been back a few days and I was walking. We were only allowed out for a certain amount of time during that COVID period. I think we, we were out two hours a day. We were allowed to go out and do shopping in Spain here, very strict. Mm. I was walking past the bin area and someone had put a load of bottles by a bin. And in one of the bottles was a third of a um, bottle of vodka that they'd left by the bin. And I walked, I walked past this bottle of vodka for three days and it was on my mind. And then the obsession started building up until when I was waking up in the morning thinking about this bottle of vodka by the bins, walking past it. And one day I was walking back from the shops and my child voice in my head was telling me, you can just have that. Make yourself feel better. You can you can just have that, and that'll be it. You can control it. You've been 
been for three years. You, you know, you're strong now. You've got this under control. Just have that. And then you'll feel great for the night and just chill out for the night. And this is what's going on, the conversation in my head, this what I call negotiating with your brain. And plus and you have I, the fuck it moment, what you call yeah, the fuck, fuck it moment. Fuck it button, which I, yeah. I talk about on the channel, the fuck it button. And we all hit this at some point in our lives when it just gets so much about, oh, fuck it. Yeah. And just with, without even realizing it, I picked up this um, vodka and took it in. And this is, how, this is how addiction escalates. The thing is with alcoholism, and I will say alcoholism now because I know I am an alcoholic. Um, I, it escalates. Every single time you relapse, it gets worse. It's a progressive thing. So, and your tolerance levels aren't what they, you know, if you've been abstinent for a period of time, they're not what they, what they were, obviously. Mm. Your body, you, this is why so many people die when they relapse because um, they go back to the quantities they were drinking before or take drug taking they were doing before. Mm without um, easing themselves in, you know, and this is the nature of the illness, if you like. And took this third of vodka, and within 20 minutes to half an hour, I was going down to the Aldi down the road buying two more bottles of vodka. So... Had you drank that in an, in, in an hour, in less than an hour? Well, I drank the third I drink, I drank the third of a bottle of vodka in less than an hour, yeah, that had gone. So the first, once the first one had gone down, mm. uh, and the familiar feeling of peace came over me and and all the noise stopped in my head then um i was gone i was i, I was back at square one again but so, of course your body because you've been absent for three years uh, just isn't was, used to that kind of quantity oh i was fucked i remember i remember waking up the next morning because I, I dropped unconscious i blacked out don't remember anything but fortunately my um my daughter my my oldest daughter, God bless her, notices these things because mm. uh, I wasn't going to say anything to, to anyone again. And um, she told me to um, to get some help, talk to somebody. Mm. See, the, I think this is where this is where the breakthrough comes. Really, I think if you want to call it a breakthrough, um, and and the sort of bottom, if you like. Um, because I then I then eventually at the end of this binge I'd ended up in hospital on a drip, and um, I suppose that was the point where I discovered my own mortality, if you like, um, and that's where it, this had to take me really for me to say probably the bravest things I've ever said because um, I've never done it before, and I said please help me to someone. Um, the bravest thing I think a lot of men in particular think it's a, a weakness to ask for. I used to because of my ego, I can do this on my own. I can, I can beat mm. this shit. You know, this isn't going to beat me. I've done this and I've done that. I've achieved this. I've achieved that. But the reality is you can't beat it on your own. You have to have a support network in place. You have to have people you can talk to on a daily, hourly basis. Sometimes in early sobriety, several times an hour, sometimes because that's the sort of support you need with it. It's particularly if it's, if it's got to that level of dependency and, and, and your addictions, so out of control uh, it's it's good the next steps once it's taken everything from you your health and, and death comes next it'll take it'll kill you uh, and i've got many people that i know who've died from this this is how serious it is it is life and death um and it took me getting to that point to ask for help proper help so uh i did and i discovered a new way of um and i've been 
you know, I've, I've discovered a new way of living, if you like, um, from that point on, once I'd asked for help. Um, I'm also realising that this was totally my responsibility. There's no one else going to, no one was going to ride in, if you like, and rescue me. Every change I'm going to make in my life has to come from me. It is my responsibility. No more fucking excuses, because all the excuses I made, I blamed my drinking and drug use, and I blamed on everything. You know, when I celebrated, when I commiserated, when I wanted to hide from emotions, um, my family, my childhood, my upbringing, trauma, a bad day, a good day, a day when nothing was happening. They were all excuses to, to use and drink. In my mind, you know, um, when, it, when the dependency hits, it's obviously a different story. You have to drink. Mm. You, don't want to, you don't want to drink. You have to just to stay well. Um, but, you know, hopefully it never reaches that level. But take responsibility, ask for help, uh, be willing to change, be to- then start to get fucking honest with yourself. Start to start to look at yourself and start to accept yourself for who you are and what you are and accept life uh, how it is and not how you want it to be. In other words, stopping trying to control everything and control other people. And, can, you know, it's just fighting a battle against life all the time, which was what I was doing constantly. Um, so they say living life on life's terms, don't they? But um I've learned, and also, I mean, people ask me today, you know, are you ever going to drink or use a drug again? Mm. And I answer, I, I, I say to them, honestly, I, um, I can't see the future, so I can't tell you that. But what I can tell you is that I'm not going to take a drink or use a drug today. And that's what I commit to every morning. Um, I commit every morning to staying sober for that 24 hours. And... I've found connection. The one thing that was missing from all of this, all of this jigsaw, if you like, is connection and support. However you find that connection is up to you because no judgment at all. You know, I've learned not to judge anything from anyone. So however you find it, there's many ways. But for me, a peer group is the best way. Um, I'm in a program, uh, um, but there are lots of programs. There are programs that are like Smart Recovery. There are groups online. There are friends. There are family. There are professionals if your issues and traumas can't be dealt with, you know, that need professional help, obviously. But until you ask for help, until you have support in place and a structure and a program, then you can forget it. You won't. If you've got issues like I had, for instance, then you won't stay sober. You won't manage it. There's another thing uh, in my conversations with people, which is what keeps coming up is the concept of meaning. And you mentioned it. Um, and it, Victor Frankl ma- mentioned it in, in Man's Search for Meaning, where he talks about if you haven't got any meaning in your life, you will replace it. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here with pleasure. You'll fill that yeah. void with pleasure. Finding meaning and purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with that. And uh, that hole I talked about, I call it a hole in my soul, if you mm. like. Um, and I can remember that from childhood, like I shared with you. You know, I can remember having that all through my my whole life. And I've only recently filled that. And it's, uh, 
don't get me wrong. I'm a work in progress. I'm a, I'm a constant work in progress and, and always will be probably. This is another thing. But meaning and purpose. Um, I thought the purpose of, or the meaning of my life was um, around my work and the material world and getting as much as I could, looking after my family and all, all those things are really important. But they, they didn't give me any uh, real peace, purpose, happiness, if you want to call it that. Um, for me, that has come from the work I do around volunteering, around helping and sharing uh, my experience with other addicts mm. and helping those and into recovery and beyond, uh, which I, con I do every single day now. Um, I volunteer regularly with various, various charities and, and around the 12-step group I'm in. I give service in that. All of these things have given me, and I've given my life meaning. And then on top of that, I've had the joy of um, being present for my family and my grandchildren in particular, you know, the, their birth and their, their early life where I've been sober, you know, and, um, and, and, and the, the joy and purpose that gives me of teaching them and, 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 and being with them. But the real boost to my uh, self-worth and self-esteem has come through the giving of my service and um, being there for other people. Uh, it may sound a bit corny, that, but that has given me more self-esteem and self-worth because it makes me think, you know, I'm not a bad person. And then I think someone, I, I, someone once, the other day said to me, um, summing up the meaning of life, you know, when you consider that it's 400 trillion to one that we'll actually be, mm. yeah, that we'll exist at all. Uh, so it's, 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 I'll sum the meaning of life up in five words is enjoy each moment in time. And um, that's Living another one now. of my, that's, Jim, that's uh, was, another was, one of my so, mantras. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the COVID relapse, that was the last relapse. Yeah, the last bit, the last one, the COVID on, on my Camino de Santiago. I've right. since been, I've, during this last period of my, my, my sobriety, what I call my serene sobriety, if you like, <laughs> um, the, um, I've been back and completed that um, Camino. Uh, I went in February and completed that, which was a, a big achievement. We raised, raised money for um, St. Mungo's homeless charity in the UK um and people were very generous and that was a that that gave me I'm, we're going to go back each year and do that that's another great opportunity for me because another thing i want to share as well quickly i just uh, is about um it's just coming to my mind now someone once shared with me um and it's really important in my sobriety the secret of your success lies in your daily routine mm. and the thing is People's expectations when they, this is why a lot of people in, don't stay sober, particularly in early sobriety, because mm. their expectations are extremely high. They go on this pink cloud business that people talk about, this euphoria of first getting sober, and um, they've not really dealt, you know, they expect things to be perfect. But guess what? Life is shitty, and life isn't fair, and life isn't perfect. There'll be great highs, there'll be great lows, there'll be bits in the middle. Mm. Um, and you've got to embrace all those moments uh, and accept them for what they are. But the daily routine for me, um, small wins. When I first got sober, I didn't set my expectations too high. Literally, it was having a shower in the morning. It was making my bed. It was tiny, brushing my teeth. 
these were all things that I wasn't even doing in my addictions. Tiny little wins that you build on and you build strength from. So, and that big routine will then build and build and build and build mm-hmm. till it reaches habitual level. And then you need to use discipline. Fuck motivation. Because people say motivate motivation comes and goes. Mm. It comes and goes. People, you're either most, I mean, I, I go to a gym regularly. I'm not motivated to go there every day, but I go because I'm disciplined and I go and I know that's going to make me feel good and, and, and help me. Um, so discipline, focus and consistency around your daily routine, whatever that routine is. And you build your own routine, you, whatever keeps you, optimizes your sobriety, if you like. So together with the connection and the meetings I go to and all the rest of the stuff, that daily routine is key to my sobriety. You know, it's like in tablets of stone. I call it, it's non-negotiable. All those things in every day are non-negotiable. Tim, what, what's your perspective on this concept of, and you've touched upon it already, replacing one addiction with another. So say, for example, replacing alcohol with an obsessive compulsive need to exercise, yeah. replacing tramadol with, um, a, a, I don't know, an interest in ornithology or something. Yeah. Is there any merit in that concept from your perspective? I think that... Uh... The, the addicts uh, as a whole, you know, people who are, I'm not going to say, I don't know what the evidence is really around being born addicts or anything. I, don't, I mean, I, I just think that you learn coping mechanisms from your childhood that you carry into your adult life. Mm. And uh, I know that I'm obsessive about stuff. You know, I, I, you know, this, uh, I suppose, is a mixture. There's a bit of OCD involved in addiction as well, I think. They sort of cross over a bit. Uh, perfectionism you know and, and stuff like that and yes that they, they you know that can be i mean i know myself when i stopped during my 30s stopped um all the drug taking alcohol and that and replaced it with running because it was changing the way i felt i think you have to look at the reasons why you're doing these things um if you're doing it to change the way you feel constantly because you feel shitty all the time then it might be sort of cross addiction if you like it depends whether you've resolved those early because for a long time I blame that my childhood trauma and I know people go through some horrendous stuff which they have to get dealt with by a professional person but the type of trauma I went through I blamed my mother for so long um, and my childhood for my addictions um, and I've learned you know forgiveness is a funny one you know but by accepting yourself for what you are then you can start to, I accept what happened and I accept the reasons my mother did what she did. I, I, you know, she was sick just like I was sick. You know, as simple as that. And, I've, I, you know, I've let all that go. You have to let it all go. Accept yourself and let it go. And then when, you, when you're doing this other stuff, this more obsessive stuff, it's not really cross-addiction anymore because you know you're doing it for the right reasons, if you like. Mm. Where it gets iffy, where I know if, I'm, if, if I've got to work on myself, is if I start eating's one for me. If I'm uh, if I start buying shitty food and comfort eating and stuffing chocolate and crisps down myself and stuff like that, I know that's dangerous for me because relapses and stuff like that often happen um, a long time before they actually happen. If you know what I mean, they happen in the head before you've mm. realised, and so you start looking at behaviours, and that's why. Every single day, I keep it in the day. 
and work on myself every single day and listen to my thoughts and listen to what I'm thinking um, and let, letting go of things, you know, because if I start to abuse food like that, I know that I'm heading down a dangerous slope because I'm doing it. It won't be long before there's chemicals involved if I'm doing that. So um, it could be dopamine seeking behavior, dopamine rush seeking behavior. That's, that's correct. But then I keep my dopamine elevated, cold showers and cold exposure. Vim Hof. I mean, yeah. uh, elevates. I don't know if you've um, listened to Andrew Huberman, but um, I have. Yeah, his his stuff, like you know, is really interesting around dopamine, and yeah. it's um, you know that, and it and it. I've been having cold showers. I started Wim Hof years ago. Mm. Um, the breathing and the cold exposure, and that gives me that buzz, if you like, that dopamine high, if you like, for an extended period of time, if I, if that's what I'm seeking. Mm. But I think all humans are seeking that, aren't they? You know, I mean, you know, <laughs> they want to, but they want to feel like that when it's unrealistic. Sometimes it's unrealistic to feel like that, isn't it? You know, because life happens and shitty things happen. Mm. Um, you've just got to do the best you can in the moment sometimes and uh, let things go, you know, particularly around resentment and anger and, and, and all that sort of stuff. That's what and, I've found anyway. And Tim, in terms of... Um... Childhood trauma and childhood issues. Gabor Mate talks at length about the link between childhood trauma and adult addiction. Mm -hmm. And he does indicate that a solution must involve investigating those childhood traumas. Correct. Yeah. But yeah. What's your perspective on that? Do you think it's possible a long-term solution without going into that stuff or is that therapeutic stuff it's all part of the whole package is it no i think there's uh unless you've behind every addiction there's some sort of pain that's what i mean gabon matty says that and that's mm. that, that that is truth whatever that pain is mm. physical mental spiritual emotional whatever um it will drive an addiction there's no doubt about that you have to resolve those issues which keep taking you um, backwards, whatever they are. And in many cases, certainly childhood trauma and childhood pain um, play a massive part. Because as I said, from, from a child learns co coping strategies mm. um, and, and, and will suppress all of this, those feelings and emotion. You'll carry all that into your you know, it affects every aspect of your life as an adult, you know, because that childhood voice never goes until you deal with that childhood voice in your head. It'll always be there. Even in my 60s now, that child speaks to me sometimes in my head, you know, and, and I hear him. And, I, and some of those memories from my childhood are vivid. But I've had to let go the, the feelings of I'll never forget them because that was part of me. I'll never forget all this life I've had um, with, with all my trauma and addictions in it would yes, you change anything yeah well uh, the, the things i regret most or, or i would want to change if i could with the snap of my fingers is the hurt i put my children and my wife through and my friends you know and people i love i would want to change that i know nobody would wouldn't want to change that but i realized that the only way that i can move forward now is by remaining this, the person I, I am in this moment in time and being the best I can be for them. You know, I, I, my experiences and my trauma, my addictions have shaped the person I've become today. If you're looking for meaning in life, 
everything I've learned and everything I've been through, and a lot of it, you know, I'm not proud of, obviously. Um, everything I've been through have brought me to this point where I can now help other people and pass that on. And I just, I, I really don't, again, without sounding corny, I don't think there's any greater purpose in life than, um, than helping a fellow human being in whatever way you can, you know, and being kind. Um, and, and my whole ethos has changed. And I'm a great believer in neuroplasticity as well, you know, that because I've, I've experienced it. And changing those pathways in your brain so they become your default pathways by doing things like practicing gratitude every day, writing a gratitude list, which I would have laughed at a few years ago. It's re it, I do it every day now. And, and my, my, my thought processes have changed. There's new pathways opened up in my brain. I'm much more uh, a different person now, a much more positive person now in a lot of ways. I approach things in a different way. Um, you know, and I'm constantly learning. I think the big thing about this as well is the, the, it, it being open-minded, open to everything and, and attached to nothing, as uh, Wayne Dyer used to say. Um, or Seneca realize, said, attachment yeah, is the root, root of all suffering, didn't he? That's right. And he always used to say about um, something, again, which I've carried through, that um, to be perfectly imperfect as well, Mm. This chase after perfection, I because I was guilty of that all the time. Material perfection, you know, worried about what other people think about me all the time, and and, and low self esteem because of that. And now I realise, perfectly imperfect, I am, um, and accept myself for the way I am, and realise that all of any emotion I feel, negative emotion and shitty days, this too shall pass. And these are all sayings which are mm. stoic sayings, like you say, a lot of these carpe diem. One of the things on my channel that I use every single day on my channel or whenever I make a video, seize the day. Don't be one of these people who says, uh, I'll do it tomorrow because it's the killer of all hopes and dreams. I'll do it tomorrow. You need to take action now yeah. before it's too late. Because, um, you, you know, if I can do it, and it's never too late to do it. You're never too old or never too late to change. Um, so, Tim, what does the future hold? What does the future hold for Tim Johnson? <laughs> a few more years i hope that's the first uh that's the first thing i mean i want to um i want to enjoy enjoy my grandchildren first of all i want to enjoy my family and be and be present for them and be um the best person i can be for them as i can uh, as i say uh, uh, you know and i'll continue to try and be that and improve myself every single day which which i attempt to do and I'll continue with my channel. I want to take it to uh, another stage. It involves, channel's never been one for gimmicks. It's always been me just talking. Mm. I might do a bit, some, something a bit more adventurous on it and take that forward a bit. What's the name uh, of the channel, Tim? Tim Johnson Recovery. If you just bang that into the YouTube search engine, it'll come up. That's the only, it's the only one on there, I think, Tim Johnson Recovery. Um, and uh, I'll continue to grow that. And I'll continue to give service and, and, and help other people, I, you know, and continue to challenge myself physically as well. I mean, these these um, these channel these challenges I do do, like the Camino, where we're hoping to do the Camino Primitivo next year for charity um, again, which is a really tough route, the oldest of all the Camino routes, um, and that'll be a big challenge. Primitivo, that so, must be Italy, is it? Is it in Italy? No, Spain, where, where I am, oh. top end of Spain. Okay. So 
the Camino de Santiago, the one I walked was the Via de la Plata, which was from Seville to Santiago and then on to Fistera, which was 1,100 kilometers. Mm. So it's a it's a fair trek. So, um, so yeah, I'll be continuing to do stuff like that. I know, just continue to improve, really. I, I, that's the only thing I can say. I mean, it's simple, but continue to be, the, to, to do my best and be the best I can be. Um, and also just to continue to be, um, to make my environment a product of me, if you like, mm. not be a product of my environment, just to have impact on people and hopefully um, help a few people and change a few lives along the way for the better. And Tim, where can people find you outside of YouTube? Are you on Insta or LinkedIn or Twitter? Uh, no, I, I don't do the Instagram bit. I, mm. I, um, I try and, um, I, that's another thing, social media is that, I know it's, it's it's a big thing for my channel and that. I'm on Facebook under Tim Johnson. Mm. You can connect with me there if you want to contact me. Um, just, you'll see my ugly mug as you go into Tim Johnson on Facebook. Um, but that's all really, apart from my YouTube and that, I don't really do much much other stuff on um, on social media because I try and you know I don't I try not to get too in, intense on it because it's uh, it, it sends me down a, a spiral <laughs> sometimes. Mm. <laughs> Tim Johnson, thank you, thank you so much. This was fascinating and very very valuable. Thank you very much, Connor, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure.